This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, we want to talk a little bit more about Boeing. Doug, uh, breaking down the share price, it is trading higher um, today at 337.14 a share. Uh, this is, of course, as Doug mentioned, following news that Dennis Muhlenberg was ousted as CEO as the company really trying to figure out itself after those two deadly crashes of its top-selling 737 MAX jetliner. Julie Johnson has been following this story for us, uh, is aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Chicago. I have to say, Julie, that after the problems with um, the rocket launch on Friday and it not going exactly, we all were like, oh, this is not no, not what Boeing needs. Um, and I have to say, I'm not surprised that the CEO is out. Walk us through this, what this means um, for the future of the company and what they need to prioritize to kind of get themselves back on track. Well, you know, the joke about Boeing over the last, a uh, few months has been that Boeing has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> and it's just been an epically uh, horrible year for the company. Um, I, I know that, or my, my sources had told me um, that the board really wanted to try and keep Mullenberg in the driver's seat, you know, until the, the max was back in service. Uh, but that, you know, that the goalposts just keep getting moved back on that, and and the hue and cry um, was to the point where it was a dis- distraction. And um, so anyway, they they met by telephone yesterday and decided to move on. Yeah. Okay. And and I, you know, it's it's interesting because this is you know one of those great CEO stories that for a long time, you know, uh, Muhlenberg. He was lauded, you know, in terms of of the good things he was doing at Boeing, and then until he wasn't. So 737, we know, is such an important plane uh, to Boeing. My understanding is the new uh, CEO, Dave Calhoun, has already been in touch with regulators. So, you know, what is it that we want to hear as investors that the company has figured this out, that regulators have figured out truly what went wrong? Because I feel like what I have a hard time getting my head around, Julie, is that we've had problems before, certainly in the airline industry, and it feels like we have worked them out much more quickly. This one seems to be prolonged. Yeah, it really does. And I'm and I mean, first of all, it's, it's just an incredibly complicated situation and unprecedented on a lot of levels. And, you know, so the, the task has been daunting for Boeing, but they've, um, you know, they've just been, uh, and by they, I mean Mullenberg in particular, just had come off as tone deaf um, repeatedly um, all year. And, um, and, you know, the relationship with the FAA was especially um, fraught and, you know, just turned really ugly over the past six weeks after Boeing issued this uh, statement suggesting that they might be able to deliver uh, the first 737 MAX um, by the end of the the year, even though the FAA was still working through uh, the final final steps on new training material for pilots. Well, so, and this is what's kind of interesting, right? I think the breakdown 
internally within the company. And I'm, I, and I'm wondering, in an inability, inability to kind of get ahead of this, does it speak largely to the culture that has so long existed at Boeing that has broken down in terms of engineers and pilots and all the you know important parties talking to one another um, to kind of fix this problem and and you know going back to that lack of communication kind of creating this problem in the first place. Oh, I think you're exactly right, and um, so I mean, if you're Boeing. Um, Hopefully, what comes out of this is, is some soul searching, and um, and you know maybe maybe get your executives out of their private jets and you know flying your airline you know your 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 planes. airline planes and and um, you know getting closer to the customer. Um, I have to wonder if having the headquarters in Chicago contributed to some of this. I mean, the engineering work's been going on in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I, I know their daily updates, but um, it, there's, you know, it, definitely uh, some, something's broken down in the culture. Now, Calhoun, who comes, you know, comes in, is really um, well-regarded as a communicator and as a diplomat. He's got really deep experience um, so, so he might just be the guy to get them through this transition. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I guess time will tell, but it's a story that I think we all thought would be resolved at some point this year, but will definitely carry its way, uh, into 2020. So, um, we'll see what's next. Just about 30 seconds left here. What's the next thing you want to hear from the company, Julie? Um, I don't know. I mean, I really, um, I would love for the company and the FAA to get on the same page uh, because, mm. it's the, you know, the software fix has largely been done now for a couple of months. They're just going through the final uh, stages. And um, so um, so yeah. I don't know. I just, just any good news at this point would be welcome. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Julie, thank you so much. Really appreciate your reporting, consistent reporting on the Boeing story. Julie Johnson is aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News. Joining us on the phone from Chicago. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk a little bit about the fixed income world. I was taking a look at some of uh, the returns this year. The Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Corporate Bond Index, it's up more than 14% this year. Uh, The Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Corporate High Yield Bond Index is up more than 14% as well. So let's talk about the world of fixed income investing. Deborah Cunningham is Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Officer of Global Liquidity Markets at Federated Investors, also Senior Portfolio Manager. She joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Deborah, nice to have you here. Uh, I feel like you know, go back 12 months and nobody would have anticipated some of the returns, the market moves uh, in in 2019. And yet here we are. Um, tell me a little bit about 2020 and what are some of the macro themes that you're anticipating that will be most important to the fixed income markets? Sure. Well, well, first of all, thank you for having me this afternoon. Sure. Happy holidays to everyone. Um, you're right. 2019 was definitely a little bit surpri- of a surprise. We went into the year thinking that the Fed would still be on a at least on hold, if maybe not a further tightening regime. Um, and we came out of 2019 now with them having cut rates three times. That was clearly not expected. Um, I think, again, when we look into 2020, we're expecting more of a calm 
market going forward, um, expectations would be for the Fed to be on hold mm-hmm. and for a slightly positive yield curve, you know, from three months all the way out to, to 30 years. And with returns probably, you know, very similar to what you can get on a coupon basis in the marketplace, which, you know, with a little credit is probably right around 2%. And that 2% is probably whether you're talking about short-term bonds, um, intermediate-term bonds, or longer-term bonds. Now, you know, the the ability to, to be higher or lower than that is obviously dependent upon um, appreciation or depreciation pricing. And really, with the Fed on hold, we're not real, real – um, we're not real comfortable thinking that any of those on a directional basis are more likely than the other. And, and therefore, for that reason, um, our expectation of sort of uh, calm and, and, you know, without much change is, is what we're looking for in 2020. All right. So that's the U.S. What about the global, you know, central bank picture? I mean, and the geopolitical tensions that could arise uh, and how that might impact the fixed income markets? Well, first, let's talk about world economics, because global economics are really the key to where global interest rates are. And for those countries that are in negative territory, it's because of the global um, you know, economic issues that they have going on with it. We do think that's improving. Um, we, we see the U.S. consumer driving a lot of things, but uh, other um, you know, aspects of the world coming back. Uh, and, and improving from an economic outlook standpoint. On the other hand, you do mention that there are uh, lots of, you know, sort of one-off factors that, that in fact could impact very, very, um, and to a very large degree, what goes on in the, the fixed income markets and what goes on from an interest rate perspective globally. Brexit is um, due to, you know, begin again on an earnest basis in January the end of January 2020, you've got China-U.S. trade negotiations, you've got um, impeachment issues with, with a, an election happening here in the U.S. All of these things, whether their outcomes are positive or negative or neutral, can have an impact on the fixed income markets. Right now, though, we're of the feeling that there will be a bit of a lull, and although progress may be made you know, modestly positive in all of these aspects, it's really the global economy that's going to drive the bus. And that global economy is, is um, in our expectations, going to be in a slow growth scenario. I just want to jump in here and ask you about the, uh, the notion of issuance and whether or not in a rate environment that's pretty much still, uh, you know, not in an elevated level, whether you're expecting uh, more new issuance in the new year. Certainly, um, we will expect to see uh treasury issuance maintained at a high rate now the fed has been operative in the treasury marketplace so that has negated some of the large amount of issuance that is in the market at this point um but we've also seen with you know a bit of a steadiness in in the global um economy uh, a pretty a, a pretty um steady uh offering of longer-term and shorter-term debt securities in the marketplace that we think will continue. Not a huge increase, but literally no decrease. Um, expectations of sort of more of the same from a supply perspective. And the supply, um, with, with demand kind of staying the same, um, it has been definitely a factor in 2018, 2019. We think it will be less of a factor in 2020, but still be a positive one in the context of rates. What about offshore? I mean, are you tempted to maybe uh, take a position on some uh, Chinese debt, corporate debt in China? 
Well, you know, from my perspective, we are looking at um, the, the, the highest quality, most liquid securities in the world. And as such, uh, China is not approved from a country perspective with some of our riskier fixed income portfolios. Um, you know, that that is uh, of consideration, but without a huge amount of commitment yet at this point. All right, going to leave it on that note. And, of course, Doug Krisner chiming in with some uh, really smart questions in terms of the fixed income markets. A lot going on. Deborah Cunningham, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Officer of Global Liquidity Markets, Senior Portfolio Manager at Federated Investors, joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. I did not also see this coming. Bank of America shares, check it out, uh, among the big banks. This stock is up about 43% so far this year. That compares with a 32% rise in the Invesco KBW Bank ETF. Bank of America CEO and Chairman Brian Moynihan, excuse me, caught up with Bloomberg Television anchor David Weston. They talked about the economy and so much more. Listen in. The idea is the economy was slowing down, and the question was, could people be assured it wasn't going to keep going? And that was the debate that raged during the middle of 2019 and the, and the yield curve inverted and other things went on. And the worldwide slowdown was another aspect. So we went from, we're going from 3% growth rate to you know, low twos, two, three, two, two, whatever it'll end up being with a one seven is our estimate for next year. So the, the debate was, okay, it's slowing down, but will it not keep slowing down? And it was clear that that wasn't the case, but everybody was starting to talk themselves into that that was the case. Uh, then you added into it a couple major geopolitical discussions going on. And, but think about it, just in the last four months, really, you've seen things resolve, even though we had something that people say would affect it, which was impeachment, it hasn't changed the, the view of the market and the view of growth. And that comes down to the U.S. consumer. Uh, I want to talk about the U.S. consumer, but we also had three rate cuts from the Fed. How much did that help sort of slow the, 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 the decline? Well, I think as the Fed said in their minutes in their discussion around this, it was about insurance to put a little more accommodation in the economy to make sure that that uh, decline in growth rate bottomed out, or at least projected bottom out, or people thought it was going to bottom out. And if what you've seen is, as you've looked at the statistics, whether it's today's confidence numbers, they've all started moving back a little north. They've started moving back in favor. Still a little tough on the uh, institutional side, the commercial side, in terms of there was a true inventory recession the first part of the year. So that classic sort of working through the trade issues. But on the consumer side, the strength. But I think the Fed's moves gave the confidence that they're ready there to put that insurance policy on the table. And it appears to be just enough right now. Well, the Fed seems to be indicating they're probably going to stand pat unless things change uh, through 2020. Uh, do they need to keep cutting to keep the growth going? I don't think they do because the consumer. And so when we look at the consumer, when I, we talked to, last time we talked, we were talking about the year-over-year -year growth rate for consumers through that period of time being 5.8%. It still is. It's closer to 6 now. The holiday spending is up double-digit from last year through last Friday, so you're seeing it now through the Cyber Monday, and you'll have great discussions with people about how many days there are between Christmas and Thanksgiving, but even halfway through the period, more or less now, you're seeing the growth rate at 6% year-over-year uh, in the credit cards, but almost 10% overall. And so there's a lot of other spending going on, cash and other things. So we feel, we feel very good about the consumer in the U.S. In, if that's two-thirds of the U.S. economy, mm -hmm. it's as big as China's economy. The, you know, those are big anchors. And by the way, in Europe, the consumers are spending also. So you put that together, that's a big part of the world's economy is, is solidly moving forward. 
You have a vantage point into the U.S. consumer that, that maybe no one else has, very few have, that's for sure. When you look below the top line numbers of the consumer, do you see any overperformance, underperformance, either geographically or socioeconomically? Is it distributed evenly? Well, I think what you're seeing now is the wages are growing, especially in the median income area and, and, and lower, growing faster now, which is good because that's, if you go back to what the Fed was trying to do, they're trying to make sure that the tight labor market translates to people's income growth. And that's been consistent, frankly, from Chair Yellen to Chair Powell, the same thought process. And you're seeing that, that happen now at an accelerating rate. And so it, that is a good thing because that means there's more money uh, to more people and more people are spending it. So that's, that's a good thing. And so that insight you see, and you see that translate into broad-based spending. And it's, uh, it's, there's a little bit of difficulty always about spending on things versus spending on experiences, um, going to do stuff, going out to dinner. And you're seeing them both remain strong with, a, with additional emphasis on experiences and, and electronics and things that are not necessarily a car or something like that, but they're things that people can consume and, and like. From what you see uh, at Bank of America, can we keep this going with respect to the consumer specifically? Because typically economists say you either have to have more people working or you have to have a higher productivity. We're not getting a lot more people working in terms of the overall population size, and productivity growth is not as robust as it has been. Well, this is a great question. You're kind of in this nice equilibrium where job growth is enough to more than absorb mm -hmm. the population growth, which then brings people in the labor market, and you're seeing the participation rate inch and you're seeing the, the underemployment rate come, keep coming down, and those are all good things, and if you hear the experts talk about there's still a lot of potential slack out there. There's still a lot of people who could work that we're pulling back in. The question long-term will be, you'll run out of those people at some point with an unemployment rate of you know, mid-threes and maybe going further south with an a, a, a underemployment rate coming down also. You will start to run out of people, and that's the question about immigration getting a, a bipartisan structural thing that feeds the immigration uh, uh, issue into a population growth and economic growth issue and away from uh, uh, the other types of things it gets tied up in. All right, of course, that was uh, the CEO and chairman of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, talking with Bloomberg Television anchor David Weston. You can hear more of that at Bloomberg.com. Here with uh, some thoughts on the bank sector and BAC is Bloomberg News cross-asset reporter Vildana, uh, Vildana Heyrich, and she joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What's your takeaway from that? So my big takeaway here from that clip that we just listened to is that what he was saying is everybody was talking themselves into a recession just a couple months ago. That was the big... So quickly everybody jumped on board, right? Exactly. And we really have to go back to August to understand what he was saying. It was when the Fed first cut rates and one day later the president came out and tweeted some new tariffs on China, 10% tariffs on about $300 billion, uh, worth of goods, and it really sent the market into a tailspin. People were really fearful about what was going on. Powell had said at the press conference that it was a mid-cycle adjustment. It freaked everybody out. So those recession fears at that time were kind of real. Right, yeah, it's funny. Peter Coy, a great story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine, I think it was about a week or two ago, but just that whole idea of three months ago, four months ago in August, we all thought the world was coming undone, and then here we are today, and it seems like recession fears are off the table. Um, I do want to ask you about bank stocks in particular. I mean, the run-up that Bank of America has had, the whole sector overall, these big banks, and I know they struggled for some time coming off the crisis, but man, they have had quite a run, and you had a great story back on December 12th. Um, about how long it took for the recovery in financial stocks. 
That's right. So uh, about a week or so ago, we saw financial stocks in the S&P 500 surpass their previous closing high that they had hit all the way back in 2007. That was their February 2007 record. So it took them about 13 years to surpass it. It was the very... It is, and it was the very last uh, industry in the S&P 500 to to finally catch up. I have to say, one of my great regrets, Doug Krisner, I just want to bring Doug back in, Citigroup, I remember it wasn't like a buck a share. Mm. (laughs) And I just thought, you know, in hindsight, I don't even know what it is today, but all of these big banks that were so hammered and lost most of their value, uh, Citigroup's now like $79 a share, Vildana. Like, you go back to the crisis, they were just decimated. And it's pretty remarkable to finally see how much they bounced back. That's right. And if we look just at this year, the S&P 500 financial sector is up 29%. Yeah, pretty remarkable. All right. Thank you so much. And Doug, thanks for the hmm. <laughs> that was impressive. Phil Donna, thank you so much for making sense of uh, the bank sector and some thoughts on B of A. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so no doubt about it, we've been all over this story uh, and it continues to evolve. Uh, We're talking about Boeing. The CEO is out and this, as the company continues to really struggle in uh, all the turmoil after two deadly crashes of its top-selling 737 MAX. Well, coming out um, this week, of course, or it's on the newsstands right now, is Bloomberg Business Week magazine. And we've got a story specifically on Boeing and what went wrong with the 737. Projects and investigations reporter Peter Robeson writes about uh, that in the current issue. He's also writing a book, by the way, about the 737. He joins us from Seattle. And then here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Joel Weber, our Bloomberg Business Week editor. And Joel, I was thinking about when I saw it, um, timely that you guys did a deep dive into um, this story, but it continues to you yeah. know, have a new headline on it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, although I will say that I think this story is actually a bigger one than anything like today's news about uh, the CEO uh, uh, being removed. Um, so, uh, and that's really a testament to Peter as well as Julie Johnson, who have really been all over this story since the 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 real seven thirty seven Max stuff happened started happening earlier this year, which we actually had as a cover story back in the spring. But but Peter, what what was the thing about the story in this current issue? Can you like rewind the clock for us a little bit because it really to me speaks to where all the problems ultimately began. Sure. Uh, th- thanks a lot for, for having me. Um, so, so what Julie and I tried to do in this story was to try to um, put ourselves in the mindset of what the employees were, were going through at the time the MAX was developed. There's been a lot of kind of broad conversation about how managers were speeding uh, engineers uh, to finish their designs and that there was a lot of pressure. And we, we looked deeply into what the pilots who were testing the plane were going through. And we found a lot of dysfunction in that organization. There, there wasn't a lot of communication happening because that group was deeply split over plans that Boeing had um, accelerated to uh, turn its training business of, of sort of training customers and how to fly their planes in, into a profit center of its own. And that, according to a lot of people we talked to, led uh, Boeing to take some shortcuts with training, to, to change what it traditionally provided as a service into a, a profit-making enterprise. Boeing was bringing in contractors uh, who were known as purchase service pilots, and, and the pilots we talked to had a more derogatory name. They what was them, that? Uh, DBCs, uh, Dirtbag Contractors, uh, PSPs is the, the acronym that they actually 
and so so it just sort of spoke we we thought to the just the level of of turmoil and and angst at at Boeing at the time the Max was developed. Peter, who should be responsible for changing? This is a company that, as you uh, you know, write in this story, is a company that's known and synonymous with quality training, pilot checklists, famous for its Boeing Boeing test pilots. Who's responsible for taking that company and creating a company where there were lots of divisions between the engineers and pilots and kind of fighting among individuals uh, at the company? It, it goes back many, many years. I mean, some people even uh, even would pinpoint the merger with McDonnell Douglas, which which led a, a team of sort of more cutthroat engineers, uh, cutthroat managers, to come into the, the the company, and there was more of a focus on shareholder value and, and cost management. But but specifically at the time that uh, the, the, this uh, the, these disputes were happening among the pilots, the the CEO was um, Dennis Mullenberg's predecessor, uh, Jim McNerney, who's a, a GE veteran and uh, according to at least one person we talked to, not, not a fan of unions. And his response at, at the time was to uh, you know, to really come down harder on the, the employees, and uh, they they moved. They ended up moving a group of simulators in Seattle all the way to Miami after employees uh, voiced some concerns. Peter, who there are some other interesting characters um, that you kind of unearthed in the reporting of the story, um, particularly some test pilots at Boeing. Can you tell us more about what those characters were like? Yeah, I mean Boeing's history is is fascinating. It goes back to the the you know really to 1916, but then to the jet age and and at the dawn of the jet age, uh, Boeing uh, was working. You know the 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 only uh, jet plane at that time was the British Comet, which had crashed a, uh, a couple of times, and so Boeing was developing a plane called the 707, uh, which uh, would end up being the first successful jet transport and the. The test pilot who flew it was uh, was named Tex Johnston uh, because he wore specially made cowboy boots uh, for each flight, and he actually um, did a barrel roll of the prototype of the 707 uh, at a, a festival in Seattle, which uh, the, uh, the Boeing CEO famously turned to the person next to him and said, uh, "Hand me my heart pills," because <laughs> he hadn't been told about it. Um, so it, so, so the- there's this this great tradition there. Listen, I've just got about 30 seconds here, Peter. So you're writing a book on the max. Um, I'm curious if your editors and your publisher keep pushing up the deadline or pushing it out because the story keeps evolving just very quickly. <laughs> Definitely pushing it up. The, the story keeps moving fast as today's news made clear. Yeah, pretty pretty interesting. Um, Going to leave it on that note and I highly advise everybody check out Peter uh, and Julie's reporting uh, on Bloomberg.com, also Businessweek.com and check out the magazine for that current story on Boeing. Our thanks to Peter Robeson, Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Seattle. Jill Weber, thank you, thank you. Editor at Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So we do want to talk a little bit about shares of Tesla because they did go above $420 a share for the first time in intraday trading. We care about that level because Tesla founder Elon Musk has talked about taking the company private at uh, such a price. He did that last year. So surprise for the stock today, perhaps. And speaking of Tesla surprises, how about the outperformance of Tesla compared with all other global automakers? This story catching our attention as well. Matt Winkler is editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, uh, owner of a Tesla, I believe, as well. 
well. And he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You've written a lot of great stories um, about Tesla, I feel like, uh, over the last year or so. So Matt, tell us about Tesla in terms of when you look at this company and compare it to the auto global or the global auto universe. So the first thing that's inescapable is that this company that's 10 years old, its initial public offering a decade ago, and it has outperformed every automaker, and we're talking about 38 across the globe, in total return, sales growth, long-term shareholder value. That's not an easy thing to do um, for an adolescent, um, maybe not even an adolescent, right. um, but they've done it. And they've done it uh, with something that is, you know, probably as powerful as it gets. If you think of climate change as the existential threat of our time, and many people do, people have in their hands the fossil-free future, and they're driving it. And not only do they like the fact that they're doing that, but it's thrilling to them. And that's why Tesla, uh, for example, in the U.S., is outselling every entry luxury vehicle in that category from Germany and Japan, so, which is also unheard of. So you're talking BMW, you're talking Mercedes, you're talking Absolutely. pick your pick your name. Lexus. Lexus. Everything that is in the entry uh, luxury category, that Tesla's Model 3 is outselling. What I find remarkable about Tesla and the company, the stock, the individual, Elon Musk, is that people are either all in or all out. In other words, you've heard a lot of prominent people who have been short selling this stock, and there have been some cases where they've made, that's been a great bet for them. Uh, right now, that's a hard bet for them. It's a terrible bet. Um, you know, starting with Jim Chanos, who's been around for a long time, very famous short seller. He still is short. Uh, another one is uh, David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital. Um, but if you look at, and we can do this on the Bloomberg, what's happened to short sales uh, in the past year, they plummeted. Short sales against Tesla plummeted. And Tesla's no longer, you know, the uh, most shorted stock if it was on the S&P 500. It's, it's way down from levels way, that we've it, seen, right? Yeah, it's way down. And to answer your question, you know, the the dichotomy really, I think, is explained by there are a whole bunch of people who look at Tesla as an outlier, who don't really know the car, the vehicle particularly well. Um, and that's a big disadvantage. And then there are the people who do know it. Right. And um, the people who do know it are passionate about Tesla. And so who would you want to be with? The people who know a lot about what they own as opposed to people who don't know as much as they should about what they don't own. And that's really the dichotomy. And, you know, an example of that is Einhorn, for example, if you just went to the Bloomberg. David Einhorn, right? Yeah, you would see, you know, an un almost unlimited number of stories about uh, Einhorn and his skepticism about Tesla and being a short seller. You may find here and there a story by, about Kathy Wood, who is the CEO of ARK Investment. And she has uh, been spectacular. You know, she's a bull, yeah. uh, but you don't read much about her. Uh, in February, she said, I'm sticking with my target price of Tesla at $4,000 a share. Yeah, okay, which, and, which was a brave call. Well, you know, she's been right because of one thing, and this is what people miss, is the sales. Nothing gets investors more excited than growth. Right. And Tesla, since it started selling the Model S in 2012, 
has seen sales grow 52 times. Yeah. Compare that to the rest of the industry, which is something around 46%. So, you know, it's growth more often than not that inspires investors in whatever they're investing. I love going to the FA page of the Bloomberg and just taking a look at the revenue, the year-over-year -year growth. Um, Kathy Wood, ARK Investments, know her well. She was one of the Bloomberg 50 prominent folks last year because of her calls and her ETFs have just beat all the rest. And she really plays into these companies that have disrupted um, different industries and the world, and Elon Musk certainly one of them. So I don't know, Matt, uh, you know, what are you looking for for Tesla come 2020? Well, um, I have an advantage because again, I can go to the Bloomberg <laughs> and the Bloomberg tells me that the same analysts, by the way, who are not recommending the stock still see growth in sales for Tesla in double digits this year, next year, and the year after. Right. And you know, to compare that to the auto industry, they're talking, you know, 1% here, 1% there. So that's a big gap, if you will. So in other words, the growth for Tesla is likely to continue the way it has already uh, the past couple of years. And by the way, another example, and, and you can thank Kathy Wood for this one, you know, 10 years into its initial public offering, there was another company that actually had more negative commentary and more negative recommendations about the stock. That was called Amazon. I love that. I love that. I'm going to put your uh, story out on Twitter because I think that comparison really kind of rings home for all of us. Matt Winkler, thank you. Thank you. Happy holidays. He's, of course, our um, Bloomberg News um, chairman, editor-in-chief, I should say, emeritus of Bloomberg News. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Doug, of course, breaking down those numbers here. Little change on the overall market, and we're coming off our highs of the day. In fact, on the S&P 500, pretty much near our lows of the day, but just up about two points. All right, let's bring in David Spica. He's president at Guidestone Capital Management, joining us on the phone from Dallas. Uh, David, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, I don't know. What are you thinking as you look back at 2019 and start to get ready for 2020? I'm thinking I'm not as wrong about 2020 as I was about 2019. <laughs> join the join the crowd. Well, well, what Holy what gives smoke. you that certainty that you feel like 2020 is a better is is you're going to be able to kind of handicap? Well, I think the the key thing that we're focusing on is earnings growth. Now, 2019 was really a function of Fed rate cuts and PE multiple expansion. We did about 2% real GDP growth this year. Earnings were flat year over year. That's not the kind of environment where stocks go up 30%. However, the Fed pivot and the subsequent three cuts is what really drove investors into risky assets like stocks and drove stocks higher. So next year, we're not going to have that tailwind. What we need next year is legitimate growth. We need legitimate earnings growth. And the risk is that that growth creates inflation that catches the Fed off guard and they have to start raising rates again. So we expect much more subdued returns next year, particularly given the uncertainty around what's going to be a very divisive presidential election. 
So, David, I'm wondering whether or not, given everything that you are saying about the kind of the landscape in the U.S., whether you would be tempted to look overseas right now for opportunities, particularly on Europe, where you could make the case uh, the weakness in the equities kind of accurately reflects a very weak European economy. But we may be seeing a turn right now and that you want to get in to uh, participate in what could be some upside for the European markets in the new year. Yeah, I think on a relative basis, Europe does look a little bit more attractive than the U.S., but bear in mind that the, the, the European averages were up in the 20% range as well this year, so it wasn't like they were down. Um, what you're seeing also in Europe is very similar to what you're seeing in the U.S., you're seeing optimism surrounding very liquid or very easy central banks and a lot of liquidity being produced by the central banks, but not a lot of real substantive economic growth. Now, the one key, though, getting Brexit solved, and also the China trade deal, if in fact we do have a legitimate phase one agreement there, I think could spur some additional growth that might make uh, economic growth and earnings growth a little more robust there uh, than we, what we saw this year. But do we have to see some kind of correction uh, to make to bring valuations kind of a little bit more down to normal, if you will, at this point, David? Valuations normalize either through rising earnings growth or a stock market correction. So we need to see one of those, too. I mean, the, the Which one? About 20- Which one? Those are two different, you know, takes. Yeah, here. they are. Um, we, we believe we're probably due for a correction. However, the one thing we've been hanging our hat on is this China trade deal. Now, if this thing is real, and if it spurs more corporate spending, and we can keep the job market growing like it has been, and consumers continue to spend, we could see the earnings growth that we need to rationalize current stock prices. Short of that, though, a correction is going to be necessary. So if, you, if there is rotation, then, that you're adopting within the U.S. equity space, you're moving out of what and into what? Well, that's a great question because a lot of the sectors that normally you would go into if you're expecting higher volatility are the ones that perform very well this year. That the consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, um, technology continues to be very strong in terms of performance. I don't know you're going to see the same kind of opportunity there. I think you just have to be very selective about the companies that you own. You need to buy companies with visible earnings growth and very solid balance sheets that tend to perform better in more volatile environments. Um, That's kind of been where we've been, but I I think it's tough to make a big bet on high-fly, high-growth companies going into next year unless we see that growth inflection from the earnings perspective that, that we would like to see. Well, and you know what's interesting? Our Vildana uh, Hyrek was on earlier, and she has an interesting story that's on the Bloomberg, uh, written with Sarah Ponsek. And they just talk about, they remind us that research often shows us that, um, you know, returns in the equity markets often often precede a profit pickup. So I do wonder if profits get better in 2020, and that's kind of what you've seen in the run-up of equities this year, and we need to keep that in mind. Interestingly, I spoke with Renana about that story myself earlier this week, and she posed that particular theory to me. I'm not a big believer in that because I think the theory is that the market corrected in the fourth quarter of last year, anticipating a lower earnings growth this year, but the market took off in the first quarter, and we had four consecutive quarter of negative year-over earnings growth. So it's kind of hard to say the market was anticipating that. I do think. Well, don't you feel like last December, Doug and I were just talking about it, kind of the stock right. apocalypse. There were a lot right. of things going on, trade worries, miss, you know, missteps by the U.S. Central Bank. I mean, there were a lot of things that all of a sudden came together that really scared investors and just said, I don't know kind of where things are going. And that's why you saw a lot of investors run from the market. I feel like last December was novel in some ways. 
It really was. And a lot of people right now are wanting to say, let's just not look at last December. Let's not consider that part of the last 12 months because it was really an anomaly. The key, though, was the Fed. And the key was the Fed last December. The key was the Fed this year. Now the Fed's in a place where I think investors expect them to be uh, very loose, uh, but not at zero yet. So still some room to move down. But again, the, the, earnings growth, the growth factor is really the key. And, and I guess you can make a case that yeah, next year is going to be better from earnings. That's why the market's up this year. But we really think the market's up this year largely based on the Fed. Now, the trade deal that we just got is clearly an additional boost. But if you look where stocks are today, the good news is really priced in. So even if we get that 10% earnings growth that the consensus expects next year, is that already priced in? I would say it is with a 30% up year. So we're not yeah. expecting a bear market. We're not expecting anything like that. But much more subdued returns next year right, right. really should be what investors expect. So, David, then everything that you're saying about the optimism on trade and the Fed, let's just agree that they do nothing in the new year. Does that mean a weaker dollar in net-net, a positive for U.S. equities very quickly? Just got about 20 seconds. Sure. I think a weaker dollar and it could be positive for U.S. equities and we're also very easy comps year over year, which could create a boost for earnings next year. Those are all things that I think are already factored in, right? Um, which could create some optimism. And Okay, going to leave it on that note. Hey, David, thank you so much. Happy holidays. David Spica, he is president at Guidestone Capital Management on the phone from Dallas. And I, I mean, novelty was kind of the market of December last year, I feel like. The December. massacre that you're talking about, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. It felt, An anomaly. It felt unusual. Yep. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.